Good morning. Um, my name's Matt, RUF Wofford. Um, I think I've met most of you, but um, it's been great to connect with you, and, and thank you for your, your warm welcome to my wife and I. Uh, we couldn't have unloaded the U-Haul uh, quicker than, than we did. We got everything in in an hour and had so much help, and so thank you for the warm welcome that we've received. We've been here two or three weeks, and because of grace, um, it's been exciting, and we've we felt very welcome. I'm excited about the fall um, at Wofford, not only doing uh, the work of RUF there, but also getting to know you guys better and getting plugged in here at Grace and getting to know you and your families and your names and your stories. And so I look forward to that. Um, Psalm 1 is our text this morning. You'll see it in the bulletin, but before we read it, my wife Ivy and I saw uh, the movie Lion when it was in theaters, and I don't know if you've seen it before, but it's a really moving story. The movie's compelling to watch. It's a, it's a story about a young Indian boy who's lo- who gets lost from his family in India, and he's adopted by an Australian couple, and he grows up with them, and they're, great, they're a great family, but this boy is absolutely fixated on one goal, to find his family back in India and to connect with them. So he's absolutely fixated on this goal, this beautiful goal, and we just, really, the story is just about us watching him be captivated by this goal. And I was so, I mean, Ivy and I remember after the movie ended, like, I never stay for the credits, I'm not one of those guys. I stayed for the credits, not because I wanted to read the names, because I was just so struck by the story, I just wanted to to stay there and, and weep, I was... I was just so moved. And I asked myself days after I saw the movie, like, what was it about Lion that got me so stirred up? And I think part of what it is, is that there are so many books and movies and stories, whether fictional or nonfiction, that tell stories like this. Like characters like this, that are absolutely captivated by a goal and will stop at nothing to reach the goal, are everywhere in Hollywood and at Barnes & Noble. They're everywhere. That's why in Lord of the Rings we have Frodo, and that's why we love Frodo. That's why we love Rocky Balboa and Rocky, and that's why we love Rudy, and, that's, and many other sports movies. But we love these people, and I, I think one of the reasons why we love to watch these characters live life is because we realize that life's storms, adversity, really can shake us. Like we know that we're flimsy. And we love to watch people live a sturdy life. But have their eyes fixed on a very particular goal that they find beautiful. And they won't take their eyes off of it. Because circumstances in our life, our feelings, our past, our fears, we know how difficult it is to remain steady and have our eyes fixed on what God calls beautiful and good and true. And the reality is that left to ourselves, we are fragile to the chaos of a world full of sin. Left to ourselves, we are fragile to the chaos of a world full of sin. And I just want to ask you this, what might it look like to live a life of godly stability in a world full of chaos and sin? What might it look like to live a life of godly stability... In a world full of chaos and sin. That question is going to guide our time this morning. And hopefully we'll get to get around to answering it. But before um, we get into Psalm 1, I just want to ask. You know, when we open our Bibles 
I don't know about you, but my eyes just go right to the Psalms. It's right in the middle. It's poetry. Like my mind just goes right to it. My heart goes to the Psalms. But I just want to ask, what are the Psalms? Let's get oriented towards the Psalms before we read this passage. So what are the Psalms? Psalms were Israel's corporate uh, worship hymn book. God's people in the Old Testament sang them in order that their hearts might be changed in particular directions, that they might lean into the world in particular ways. The Psalms functioned as a kind of language and affection school for the people of God. The The Psalms show us how to lament the sin in our lives and out in the world. They show us how to address God after we've sinned. They show us what wisdom looks like lived out in everyday life. And they show us how to reflect back on God's mighty acts in the past and as we anticipate His renewal of all things in the future. This is what the Psalms do. They are to shape us, our language, our affections. And it's important that we know that This is what I thought the Psalms were mostly growing up. It's important that we know that the Psalms are not merely poems that express the immediate circumstances and feeling of the particular psalmist or poet, though they do that. A lot of Psalms are written by David, and they're just about David. But the larger function, this was a corporate song. This is what one scholar calls public poetry. This was to effect, even if it was about David, it was for the larger community that they might lean into God's world in particular ways, in godly ways. So those are the Psalms. Follow along as I read Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf doesn't wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we come to you this morning needing to hear your voice. We walked in here after a week of hearing all kinds of voices in our head. All kinds of voices outside of our head and our families. Voices outside in the culture. Voices on the internet. Voices from our past. Lord, we need to hear your voice. But we won't hear you unless you speak to us and you open our hearts and minds to hear you. So would you do that now? We pray through Christ. Amen. Now because the Psalms are meant to shape us in particular ways, we've got to ask, what kind of Psalm is Psalm 1? I bet if you grew up in the church, you've read Psalm 1 a lot. And I I, I certainly have. I don't know if I uh, know what kind of Psalm Psalm 1 is just on the surface. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. A wisdom psalm. Wisdom psalms, Psalm 1's not the only one, they're very similar to the Proverbs, both in their content and their meaning and their language. They're both poetry. But wisdom, as one of my seminary professors calls it, wisdom is the skill and the art of godly living. Wisdom is the skill and the art of godly living. And so we want, this morning, we want to be skillful. 
So how does Psalm 1 want us to be skillful? If you're a note-taking type, here's the first point. As the people of God, we are to be a people who meditate on God's Word. As the people of God, we are to be a people who meditate on God's Word. Look with me in verse 1 and 2 again. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of wicked. We see what he doesn't do. Nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Here's the positive. But he delights in the law of the Lord. That's his delight. On his law, he meditates day and night. The first word here is blessed. Reminds us of the Beatitudes from the Gospels, doesn't it? Blessed to the poor in spirit, etc. Interestingly, the Hebrew word here can actually mean in other places, happy. So the basic sense here is that happy is the man. Blessed is the man that the psalmist is about to describe. In a lot of ways, it gets our attention. When the first word is blessed and you're the people of God in corporate worship, your eyes are coming up. But who is the the blessed, happy man? Well, we said negatively and positively. Negatively, the righteous doesn't keep company with the wicked. And the wicked in this psalm, in the context, this can be kind of a, a, a confusing word, but the wicked in the context of the psalm are those who are visibly a part of God's corporate body of Israel, but are inwardly disobeying God with their heart and in their actions. That's the wicked. There's a clear distinction between the lives and the hearts of the blessed man and the wicked man. And we'll develop and we'll see this contrast between the wicked and the righteous. It's going to get really sharp as we move on. So I'll, I'll get there later on. But what does it mean to walk in the counsel of someone? Walk in the counsel of someone. I think the NIV is actually a little clearer here. It said, blessed is the man who doesn't walk in step with the wicked. And interestingly... If you notice the verbs in verse 1, we have walk, stand, sit. The idea here is that the blessed man does not keep company in the wicked in their ways. He doesn't walk where they walk, stand where they stand, sit where they sit. Now, this does not mean that Christians are not to be associated with or spend time with non-Christians. The greatest commandment, we know this, is to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. The Bible is very clear from that, from cover to cover. But rather, believers are not to be identified with non-Christians in a totalizing sense. That's not who they are. That's what the psalm is getting at. But rather, the godly delights in the law of the Lord and meditates on it day and night. Now, law, the word law in this psalm refers to God's covenant instruction revealed in His Word. God's covenant instruction revealed in His Word as a whole. The whole of the Scriptures. Another phrase, um, or another kind of uh, claim that that authors usually uh, use for the word uh, law in this passage is law is the comprehensive term for God's revealed will. Blessed is the man who delights in everything that God has revealed to be good. But have you ever considered what it might mean to delight in the Word of God? Delight in the Word of God. I think it's a provocative word. The word used here for delight is used in other places in the Old Testament for pleasure. What does it look like to take pleasure in God's Word? Well, the blessed man is one who doesn't look at God's Word at a distance, but takes pleasure in it. 
The blessed man holds God's word tightly to his chest, knowing that they are the very words of life. The entire Psalter, the 150 Psalms, are filled with Psalms that celebrate the beauty of God's word. The longest chapter in the Bible, Psalm 119, is all about God's word and how beautiful it is. The law and the word of God lived out in everyday life is what God's character and love looks like lived out. That is God's word and God's law. It's the very way of life that God restores his image in his people in their nine to five job when they get off work and they're on their way home. That is God's word lived out in everyday life. We're to take pleasure in this. But meditate, what does it mean to meditate in God's law? I remember the first time I read this psalm, I really, my mind went, I was in college, and my mind went to like a yoga studio. And people are in, uh, a, you know, a meditative position in Indian style, and they're like this. You know, I think of like Rafiki or Rafiki in, um, in The Lion King. Like my mind goes, that's what meditate is. But experts on the biblical Hebrew can help us here because that's not what it means, thankfully. Um, but they say, this is a quote, this is, this is so interesting to me. It means, this word means, meditate, means a deep, dull sound as if a vibrating sound, signifying a kind of quiet inner voice when someone is contemplating, searching, and thinking. So to meditate on God's law is to ponder it, to consider it, to believe it, to live it out. One author likens this practice of meditating on God's word to when a dog finds a bone in the woods. What does he do? He runs and takes it off by himself. And he's absolutely fixated and consumed by the bone. He's turning it in all kinds of different directions to suck the life out of that bone. And all the kinds of... He's exhausting it. And that's why he makes a kind of vibrating sound, almost like a cat would when they purr. He's enjoying it, right? He's not making that noise because he's bored. And that's why one of the paraphrased translations of Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who chews on God's word. This is how God's people are to interact with His word. To chew on it. To meditate on it for all it's worth. Because it's worth our time and intentionality. It calls for everything that we have. And I think actually it's very challenging to us in a culture full of busyness. Like we don't have or live in a culture and have hearts that lend itself to carve out time and energy to sit and soak and take pleasure in God's Word. When is the last time you carved out time in your day or your week to meditate and take pleasure in God's Word? Not for information or theological download? Not to check off a Bible reading box. Because they're word of life that you have to have. Like you have to have it. I think a great first step in this direction might be asking, I know I ask myself this, based on how I spend my time, what is capturing my heart? Based on my habits, what am I chewing on? What am I meditating on? If I spent a fourth of the amount of time that I had a screen in front of my face and put, it, put the Word of God in front of my face, my relationship with God, at least through His Word, would be drastically different. Period. It would. I bet I'm not alone in here. 
I remember, and again, as Justin alluded to today, this is the Lord's Day that God's given us a carved out space and time that we can turn the screens off and sit in the love of God revealed in His Word. I remember in seminary, I tried not to do homework on seminaries, I remember being so, just going through a noisy week in my head, and I look so forward to Sunday when God has given us, He's essentially told us to sit still. (laughs) Now, you might be thinking to yourself, now is the, is the blessed man in here, are you saying, Matt, this is your first sermon, are you coming in here saying that the blessed Christian life is the one just like me and Jesus and my Bible in the closet? I'm glad you asked, and that's uh, incorrect. Uh, the psalm shows us for the people of God, we not only meditate on and delight in God's word, but we are to obey God's law, obey God's word. Not only to meditate on it, delight in it, but we are to obey it. Now this is what, a lot of the Psalms have agricultural imagery. Psalm 1 has this. Look with me in verse 3. It's trying to communicate that we are to obey God's word by this imagery. He's like a plea, the righteous. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf doesn't wither and all he does, he prospers. Psalm 1 is to compel God's people to be tree people. Tree people, as one commentator put it. And what do I mean by that? First, the blessed or righteous man lives a life of godly fruitfulness. You bear fruit. One commentator says this, What a richly flowing brook is to the tree that's planted on its bank, such is the word of God to him who devotes himself to it. It makes him, according to his position and calling, ever fruitful in good and well-timed deeds, and keeps him fresh in his inner and outward life. The Word of God nourishes the life of the Christian, resulting in fruit-bearing in their everyday life, advancing the kingdom of God. It's the first way, fruitful. Second way, the agricultural imagery is trying to help us here. The righteous person lives a sturdy life. A sturdy life. Notice that the leaves on the tree, they don't wither. The phrase communicates that the tree is freed and he's immune to drought. Drought's not a thing for him. Those who embrace God's word and ways live lives of stability. This agricultural imagery, the psalmist, he's trying, by using it, he's trying to compel the people of God to obey God's word and to do so in confidence, bearing fruit, but doing it in a sturdy way. This is the life worth living. God's word and law lived out, realized 9 to 5, on the way home, on the way to school, in our kitchens and living rooms, and buses, and minivans. The godly root their lives in His ways, and they bear fruit in His, his, his kingdom. Our, our community group in St. Louis... Uh, age, there's an age range from young seminary guys like me and their wives to people in their 80s that had been there at the beginning of the church. The church is like 40 years old. They've been there the whole time. And what we were doing when we, when we left St. Louis, we were on a rotating basis giving our testimonies to each other. And it was fascinating hearing the range of testimonies from the young people to the older people. And our, I'll never forget what it was like to hear the older congregants tell their testimonies. They've been Christians for 50 plus years. They're talking about how God has been faithful to them in trials, 
and in joys and in sorrows for decades. For decades. And they're not going anywhere. They're sturdy. They're sturdy. And as a young seminarian about to go into his first job out of seminary, I was captivated by it. I was captivated by it. And I recognize that some of you in here have been walking for the Lord for several decades. You've obeyed God's Word. You've meditated on it for a long time. And your lives have been full of fruit. I want to say to you, keep going. Keep going. Don't let yourself be cynical to God's Word and God's sacraments and God's law lived out in your everyday life. Because the reality is, like me and the older couple, and me and my wife and the older couple, I need you to keep going. The younger families in this church need you to keep going because we're enthralled by the way that you're living, whether you see it or not. And it's compelling. Keep falling in love with the Lord and His Word, taking pleasure in His Scriptures. But I also realize that I don't want to assume that everyone in here would claim Christianity. And maybe you've been away from the church, you're coming back, for the first time in a while and you're just questioning the whole enterprise of Christianity. To you I want to say that this psalm is describing the most compelling and beautiful life that you can live. Because this is the life that God intended for us to live. Left to ourselves we have no moral or eternal stability. We're fragile, we've said. Christian and non-Christian alike. Don't we want to be sturdy? Aren't you tired of being tossed around? The Lord is calling you to trust in Him and to abide in Him and to obey His Word, to meditate on it. But lastly, we're about to sharpen the contrast between the righteous and the wicked here. The psalm ends with the contrast sharpening to a point where it stings. Look with me in verse 4. We're rounding the corner here. The wicked are not so, but they're like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Remember the wicked are those who are a part of God's corporate body, Israel, God's people in the Old Testament, but who are disobeying Him in their heart and in their actions. The the wicked are those who say with their lives, I don't need help. I'm going my own way. The wicked refuse to take the Lord seriously and to look for Him, look to Him for guidance. And because of this, they have no stability. They're like chaff that the wind drives away. And they won't stand in the judgment. More agricultural imagery here. Chaff. Why does He use chaff? You might know this, but in ancient times when the psalmist is writing, chaff is the outer shell of grain. Very important in ancient Israel. They would fork out grain as a practice and... When the, if the wind was blowing at all, the outer shell of the grain, the chaff, would just sort of blow away. It was extremely light. And the wicked, we're told, are like chaff. They're driven away by all kinds of things like the wind. Now the righteous is who the righteous man in verse 6 is the, who the psalmist has been describing all along. He's the one who takes pleasure in, meditates on, and obeys God's word. The righteous is he who acknowledges that he's flimsy on his own and he looks outside of himself for moral and eternal security and guidance. Now, if you think that... uh, I know when I was studying this, the psalm sort of seems like it's communicating 
If you obey God's word, God will like you. And if you disobey God's word, he won't like you. He's kind of like an angry football coach or something, or an angry school teacher. But I actually think the Pharisee and the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector in the Gospels actually helps us here as a sort of a parable version of who, who are the righteous and who are the wicked. If you remember, the Pharisee is the guy who dots all his I's, crosses all his T's, doesn't do what he's not supposed to do. He shows up to work on time. He never gets in trouble at school. The Pharisee on the surface actually looks like the tree person. Just on the surface, he looks like the tree person. But the tax collector, who are known as scoundrels during the New Testament, he's absolutely undone by his brokenness. He's aware of his need for God's forgiveness, guidance, direction, and grace. And I want to say to you this morning that the tax collector is the tree person. The tax collector is the tree person. Righteous people are those who have a deep biblical self-awareness. Recognizing and owning the reality that on their own, they don't stand a chance. The righteous is like a tree. The wicked are like chaff. The righteous takes pleasure and meditates on God's word. The wicked want nothing to do with God's word and his ways. The righteous lives a sturdy life filled with godly fruit. The wicked are unstable, blown away in all kinds of directions. Now in the end... The righteous will stand in the judgment and the wicked will perish. This is where it stings. But why? Why will the righteous stand in the judgment? Do you notice this important word here? The Lord knows the righteous. I want to suggest to you this morning that the main difference between the righteous and the wicked is not so much their lifestyle, but whether or not they know God and whether or not God knows them. In verse 6 we read, For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows them, for the way of the wicked will perish. The verb used there for know is far more profound and intimate than it might seem on the surface. Commentator says this, God's knowledge of the righteous is a knowledge which is in living, intimate relationship to its subject, and at the same time is inclined to it and is bound to it by love. The righteous are not only characterized by their delight in the Lord and His Word, but God's delight in them. God is bound to them by love. He's committed to them. He's steadfast and unshakable. He is the sturdy one. The righteous are sturdy because God is sturdy and He will not let them go. The wicked, on the other hand, are those that the Lord doesn't know. And there's an inevitable judgment coming, and because he doesn't know them, they won't stand. There's no foundation. I noted at the beginning of our time uh, that Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm. Wisdom is the skill and the art of godly living. We've seen that skillful, sturdy lives of godliness involves meditating on God's Word, taking pleasure in God's Word, and obeying God's Word. But the last few verses shows us that it would be a mistake to think that Psalm 1 is only about two kinds of lifestyles. But most fundamentally, this psalm is about two kinds of people. Those who know God and those who do not. Jesus calls Himself the vine in the Gospels. And I just want to read a very quick portion of 
It's actually not so quick. You need to be patient. This is kind of a long passage. But I think Jesus, in calling himself the vine, calling his people the branches, agricultural imagery here appearing again, really encapsulates Psalm 1. I'm the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does, does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you're clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's, he's thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words, abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified in you. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Brothers and sisters, you were made for this. To meditate on God's Word, to take pleasure in God's Word, to obey God's Word. But more than that, you were made to abide in Christ, the Word made flesh. Many of you, like I said, I'm sure you've been Christian for a long time. I want to encourage you to keep following in love with the Lord and His Word. But others, you might find yourself in a season where you're really worn out with God's Word and really bored with God. Or maybe you've had a season where you were burnt by the church and it's kind of a miracle that you're even here singing this morning. And you might be thinking, man, this is your first sermon and you're coming here and beating me down with a bunch of God's law stuff. There's no way I can do this because of how weary and worn out I am. Brothers and sisters, we see that in Christ, God wants us more than He wants our godly lifestyle. If you hear anything, hear that. In Christ, we see that God wants us more than He wants our godly lifestyle. This tree life, tree people stuff in Psalm 1 is compelling. I hope you're captivated by it. But be captivated by the Lord. Because He wants you. So I asked this question, I said it was going to guide our time. What might it look like to live a life of godly stability in a chaotic world full of sin? But really, perhaps better questions might be, what about you? Tree or chaff? Wickedness or righteousness? Life or death? Brothers and sisters, abide in Christ. This is the life you were made for but because it's a life worth living because you're rooted in Jesus Christ, the Word made flesh, the true vine. Amen.